0: Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 213 of Yogaland. You are in for such a special treat today. A couple of weeks ago, Jason said to me, you know, I'd like to do a few interviews for Yogaland. Could I do that? And I said, let's sign you up right now so this is his first interview with yoga teacher abby cry abby did her 200 hour training at yoga tree in san francisco and then her 500 hour training with jason she also has an ms in inclusive adolescence education and she was diagnosed with scoliosis when she was 12. she got surgery when she was 17 Rods inserted along her spine. She'll tell you that story. And she's been living with her rods ever since. So they have a really fascinating conversation. All of my yoga teachers out there, you're going to get to nerd out, learn a lot of new things, and also just hear Abby tell her personal story. I love hearing how Abby's relationship to her scoliosis and to her body has changed since she first started doing yoga when she was a teen. And I wanted to share something that she emailed to me. She says, I'll also say that a couple years ago, I made the very intentional decision to call all my scoli workshops and trainings yoga with scoliosis and spinal fusion rather than yoga for scoliosis and spinal fusion. This is because I do not teach yoga for scoliosis or fused spines, nor am I trying to correct the spines of the students I teach. I teach yoga for humans and strive to help those humans practice yoga with these conditions. So in mentioning the workshop or training, please note that little preposition. Duly noted, and I think it's important for all of us to think about that because we've all got something. We've all got something going on. And this is very much the philosophy that Jason and I believe in, which is rather than try to quote unquote fix it or ignore it or push it away or repress it. Yoga helps us to accept who we are and where we are at any given time. You can find out more about Abby at abbywiththerods.com, A-B-B-Y with the Rods.com. and enjoy the interview.
1: Abby, I remember the first time that I met you was in Portland. I'm pretty sure that you were doing a shorter form training with me. I'm pretty sure you were doing a five-day training with me. I don't exactly yeah. remember what the topic was, but you know what I remember about you is I remember your malasana. I remember your squat.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so weird. I like, love a good malasana. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird, man. It literally. I will forget. I will forget names, but I will not forget um, certain <laughs> ways of moving a body. It's crazy. But but to be I hear you. <laughs> but to be specific, okay, so. In salutations, you know, like everyone inhales, reaches up, exhales, f- and forward folds, right? But you don't do it that way. You do it a little bit differently, <laughs> right? Am I right? It's true. It is true. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I'm so going to mix it up, but yeah, I love the a transition.
1: <laughs> so I will say this. I have stolen that, both in my own practice. Nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I will take that. <laughs> um, I figure you've learned a few things from me. I'm going to learn a few things from you but what i remember is you would inhale reach up and then you'd exhale and you come straight down into a squat right mm-hmm. and i and two things about that that i remember and this is this is kind of leading into where we're going with this conversation is one i just remember like that like angle of really deep hip flexion that you were able to get in those squats i remember thinking why is this person doing this <laughs> Right. But I always assume there's a reason with experienced students, and I can tell like who's an experienced student. Right. So when you have a more experienced student in the room who is choosing to make an adaptation, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. You have to assume like, oh, okay, Okay. they're, they're working, they're working from their own attunement to their own body. So this is good. But I also remember thinking, wow, when she does this squat, there's zero flexion to her spine, zero. And I didn't know at the time that you have scoliosis and that you have rods that are supporting that structure, right? And so it was so interesting to reflect on it. And then later on, maybe a year or two later, you did my longer training, my 300-hour training. And that's when we had a longer, more in deep, in-depth conversation about what's going on with those squats and <laughs> about your, your, the uniqueness of, of your body and, and, and how you support it. So I want to throw it to you, right. And I've given you a little introduction, right. I want to ask you specifically as an entry, like, okay, you have scoliosis, you have rods, why the malasana squat? Let's start with that, like one detail. <laughs> it's always the question. It's <laughs> always the question. And those of you, I said this earlier, but those of you that study with me, those half salutations where we put in the squat, whether you like it or don't like it, it's happy. So <laughs> what's up welcome. with that?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what's up with that. I mean, it sort of stems from both my own practice and my observations of my students' practice. It has more to do, much more to do with spinal fusion than it has to do with scoliosis. You know, for folks with spinal fusion, it, it can be very difficult to take a forward fold, a standing mm. forward fold and feel like, especially if your hamstrings are tight, you're just kind of dangling there with a stick that's been, you know, broken in half and your arms are just kind of dangling towards the earth. And so it can feel very unsupported and if your hamstrings are flexible, which my, not to brag, but I got pretty flexible hamstrings.
3: <laughs> yeah, you do. Um,
2: I, I can pretty easily touch the ground. I mean, I can very easily touch the ground with my hands again, not to brag, but, th- but then even with those, or even for those of us who have more flexible hips, sh- hamstrings, it can just be very taxing. If, <laughs> if your, your hip joint is the only thing that is flexing. Right. Right. You know, if I'm folding forward, like everyone just imagine a forward fold. Typically, people do not keep their spines stick straight. <laughs> no Hopefully whole not. Way down, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. My hope is that they don't. Yeah. But if you have rods, you don't really have a choice. So there's no way to distribute that forward flexion, you know, whether it's hip or spine or ideally both. There's no way to distribute it beyond the hip if you don't have bendable components of your vertebrae. So in an effort to not continually overstretch my hamstrings, which as you've talked about a lot, and what, what I appreciate about your teaching is like, you acknowledge the fact that so many of the poses that we do in modern day yoga, especially modern day vinyasa yoga, are forward folds, like centric, you know, there's down dog, there's uttanasana, just so, pyramid, triangle, all of it. You know, it's like, there's so many forward folds. And so in an effort to not overstretch my hamstrings, I was like, what could I do that does not just keep me folding forward, flexing the hip every single time? And, you know, it works for me to come into a malasana because malasana is a pretty easy pose for me because I have a deep (laughs) flexion of the hip and also deep flexion of the knees and also pretty deep flexion of the ankles. And I think that part of that is that I grew up, (laughs) part of my adolescence, I was wearing a back brace. And so it was, it was like, you know, training for surgery. <laughs> I didn't have a fused spine yet, but like for all intents and purposes during the day I did, cause I was wearing a brace. So it was a way to like not tax my hamstrings. And it was also a way to like support my students who had tighter hamstrings. Nice. Um. Yeah.
1: So, okay. So from this part of the conversation already, so we kind of, we, We've talked about the malasana, why that's going on, but I think what's happening is by the nature of our conversations, we're presuming that our audience might know what we're talking about when we're talking about rods and scoliosis, (laughs) right? So let's take this inroad and let's back up and let's Mm -hmm. talk just a little bit briefly. We'll talk kind of about your experience with it and, and your yoga and all sorts of things, but let's take a step back. And for our audience, let's spend a few moments talking about scoliosis, Mm -hmm. then let's talk for a few moments about scoliosis with rods, and then also fusion. So kind of unpacking some of those details just so it feels nice and clean. I know these are complicated things, but can you share with us just a a user-friendly, accurate understanding of scoliosis and then rods?
2: Yes. So scoliosis is a lateral curvature of the spine. So by that, I mean, if you're looking at a person head on, you'll see that their spine does not just go straight up and down, like, like a person without scoliosis might have, but it goes side to side. So like sometimes if you have a double curve, it can be described as an S curve. Like if you're looking at someone, their spine would make an S if you were kind of x-ray visioning them. So it's a lateral curvature of the spine. It's very often paired with a rotation of the spine or the, of the vertebrae and rib cage as well. So a lot of folks with scoliosis, like (laughs) I can, I can spot them (laughs) because I can see his rib. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at someone's ribs, you can often see someone with scoliosis, you can see their, their ribs are rotated. And it's usually if they have adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, which is the most common kind of scoliosis, Usually it's their right rib cage, the backside of their right rib cage that is kind of pushed up and for whatever reason. I don't know why <laughs> I've done a lot of research on this and I, the, the answer is unclear, but for whatever reason, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is uh, the most common presentation of it is one of four patterns. And those four patterns are right thoracic, left lumbar, right thoracolumbar and right thoracic left lumbar, the last one being a double curve.
1: So meaning so, those are the directions and the locations of the most common curvatures. And yes. you've used this word a couple of times, idiopathic. Idiopathic just sure. means not following a specific pathology, right? So, Yeah, it, they don't know what causes it. They don't know what causes it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so- And, f-
2: and the classification, I, it's a little confusing, so, I, so I'll explain this, it's Right thoracic means it occurs in your thoracic spine, i.e. any of your vertebrae that are connected to ribs. So that's your thoracic spine. Right thoracic means that your spine is pushed over to your right side. Okay. Okay. So right. it's a little confusing because because your right shoulder would be a little higher with the right thoracic curve. <laughs> You'd be tipped to the left, but your spine is pushed to your right side.
1: Another way of thinking about that then is that it is the convex side. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: the right side would be the convex side. Yeah. Okay. I always confused concave <laughs> and convex as a youth, so so I always think of it as my the
1: outside of the, the O. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the outside of the O, not the inside of the O. Man, I just made that up. I should be a podcaster or something.
2: Really good, or an totally. educator. <laughs> yeah, or a teacher. I'll figure <laughs> out.
1: learn something. Okay, so four primary types and adolescence. So is adolescence the most common time frame in someone's life that scoliosis starts to show up?
2: Yeah. And I, I don't know the exact percentage, but, it, but an overwhelming majority of scoli- cases of scoliosis show up in adolescence, and there are yes, it can show up younger, but then that's typically classified as like juvenile. Juvenile okay. scoliosis is anything diagnosed under 10 under the age of 10. Uh, There's congenital scoliosis, which you know you're you're born with. So, and then there's adult (laughs) scoliosis. So, so there's different classifications. But yes, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis (AIS) is is the most common form. That's what I have. I was 12 when they spotted it in me, and it also progress. It typically progresses fastest during growth spurt. So, so maybe for most people, possibly it's really mild when they're really young. And then it only really shows up when they're adolescents, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's been brewing for a little while and then mm-hmm. it, and then it really shows, but most of the time it's diagnosed early in adolescence, progresses during adolescence, and then stops progressing once growth maturity is reached. Some exceptions to that are if the curves are large enough, like usually over 40 degrees they may continue to progress in in adulthood. So under 40 degrees uh is sort of like they don't recommend surgery if it's under 40 degrees, but once it's over 40 degrees it's like mm, it may increase in your adulthood so we we may need to intervene with something like rods.
1: So let's get to rods and so the surgical intervention is not just a function of mitigating the scoliosis, but it's mitigating not just the postural ramifications, but beyond 40 degrees without some structural mitigation can be serious problem for organs.
2: It can, if it, if it's very severe, yes. And And again, it's a little bit hard to, it's hard to do like, I think they're called longitudinal studies, right? Like where you follow people for a long time right. <laughs> because- people get nervous and they're like, well, I don't want my spine to get worse. so I'm going to get surgery. So that, so who knows? I, I don't know that there's a huge sample size of people that had like very severe scoliosis did not receive surgical intervention and, and are continued to be studied by, by doctors. Yeah. If it's very severe, it can cause like pulmonary or lung damage, struggles, breathing, lung capacity can be reduced. And yeah, things, you know, if you have one side of your body, that's, crunched things are going to get crunched right so most of the time however like my, this this still like really gets my goat that my surgery was classified as as most a cosmetic surgery ah. because there was i it doesn't that I, really infuriates me
1: it's clearly a functional because, surgery it's yeah
2: like it orthopedic it, it made me feel like like superficial when i was getting like i don't like the mm. look of me with my, yeah. you know, rib hump, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of medical classifications, like a geriatric pregnancy at 35 <laughs> that I also have a problem with. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. But,
2: uh, So, you yeah. know, it's a little bit language and a little bit just like society's definition of the terms, but yeah, it was classified as cosmetic because I, you know, at age 17 was not feeling like back pain from the scoliosis, even though I did have like a 57 and 62 degree
1: curve, which are pretty significant That's- curves really significant. So, really briefly before we kind of get back to exactly where mm-hmm. you were talking about your process and then yoga and how and how you've worked with it. Can you just unpack a little bit more language which is mm-hmm. rods? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we can visualize what they are, but not imagine, that, right? <laughs> yeah. And then fusion, just so we make sure that all the listeners have like some some clarity. Also, because so many of our listeners are they teach, and so we want to make sure that language is really clear in our minds.
2: Yeah. So, so the surgical procedure that I got, which is the most common procedure to correct a, a very large or severe curve,
3: <laughs>
2: involves. A, a posterior entry. So they, they slice your back open okay. along your spine. And then they, through some means, straighten the spine to a degree that they feel is safe. Like it's not all the way straight, especially okay. for me. Cause I was a little older when I, when I got the surgery, some people, I guess the younger you are, when you get the surgery, the more correction you may receive. So they straighten it to a degree that they think is, is safe. It's not going to like overstretch or pull at anything dangerously. And then they secure the vertebrae in place through two means. One is uh, creating a bone paste and then putting that bone paste on the vertebrae that they're going to fuse. So typically they'll take bone graft either from your pelvis or from your ribs. They took mine from my pelvis. So they make a, they, they take a bone graft, they make a bone paste, they put it on the vertebrae that they want to fuse. And then it doesn't, you know, the bones don't fuse right away. They have to have time to to fuse back or fuse together. So to hold them there as they fuse, they put in rods. They used to be you know, in, in olden days, like pre-1985, they used a thing called Harrington rods. I don't actually know the year that they switched over, but it's some kind of new rod that is apparently more shaped or more contoured to like natural curves of spine. So I have rods one on each side of my spine, and then they secure the rods to the vertebrae with screws, pedicle cr- screws <laughs> that are, that are screwed into basically like the wings of the vertebrae.
1: Like the um, transverse process,
2: the transverse process. Yes, indeed. They screw the, the rods into the the transverse processes. And that combined with the bone paste that is smeared up and down your spine uh, holds the spine in place as you recover. And then once the bones are fused, I think it's three months, three to six months, typically that they, that the bones take to fully fuse. Don't quote me on that, but it's something like that. Then the rods actually don't really serve any purpose anymore, but it would just be another unnecessary surgery to remove them. They started doing the rod method as a way of not keeping people in a full body cast after surgery. Like that was, you know, pre Harrington rod. It was we'll fuse your spine while it fuses, we'll put you in a cast. (laughs) So uh, that was fun. So they, uh, they changed that made the rods and,
1: uh, yeah, that's, that's the story of the rods. Is there a typical length of the rods, not like by metrics, but like by vertebrae? So is it typical that if you are a candidate to receive rods, is there a fairly standard distance they, that they run through the spine?
2: Most people that I have encountered have had a double curvature, at least a double curvature before surgery. So that most people I've encountered have had a right thoracic, left lumbar. Mm -hmm. double curve and so most people who who I've encountered who have received surgery have at least most of both of those curves fused so so yeah what I have seen most commonly is some portion a a decently large portion of both the thoracic and the lumbar spine fused they're of course, are exceptions, but yeah. Most people I've met actually have a longer fused segment than I have, okay. <laughs> which is wild. My mine goes from T five to
1: L three. T five to L three. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's
1: not super long. I mean, in in terms
2: here, I, mean, ter- I mean, it's you know, it's just eleven vertebrae. <laughs> so-
1: <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? Who cares? You, you don't have much of a problem, Abby. It's no big deal. No, no. I'm just gonna just
2: quit complaining.
1: <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs>
2: go back to my molasses.
1: I'm, I'm you know what? Let me mansplain you, and let me tell you what the issue actually <laughs> okay. is. <laughs> okay. No. Oh,
3: um,
2: okay.
1: So I'm gonna ask like a level one question. I don't even know if this is a level one question. Last one, just kind of about the technical stuff on before we get mm-hmm. to the yoga part, the fusion. So this is something I definitely did not understand. Okay. So the rods are put in, and then after an a certain increment of time, fusion occurs. Now, does that fusion occur because of the bone paste that you were talking about, or does it occur naturally because those spinal segments are not able to move? And so they naturally become more fused.
2: As far as I know, it's it's the bone paste that is, yeah, that is connecting them. Because, you know, we still have, you know, I still yes. have discs between yeah, my yeah, vertebrae. Yeah. So it's, so it's not, they're not, it's not like <laughs> vertebrae just stacked on top of each other. The bone paste is, is the bridge between the vertebrae.
1: Can you get so, that yeah, as far as I know. What? It's the, it's the, it's the hottest item on Amazon bone paste. <laughs>
2: it's, yeah. You just get your own <laughs> bone powder. <laughs>
1: Um, okay. scoliosis.
2: So, get this, sprinkle it on. <laughs> totally.
1: You, you know what you could do? Like totally sponsored posts about it.
2: Oh, this
1: this give me a cash cow.
2: for you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, can't wait till the release of this podcast.
1: I get a percent. Okay. So one more question on this, which is how do the rods affect the, the lordotic and the thoracic mm. and the cervical curves? Does it flatten them oh. out? great
2: question. So before, before I answer that, I'll say that oftentimes idiopathic scoliosis is paired with, it's not, it's not only a lateral curvature of the spine, it's not only a rotation of the vertebrae, but it is also often paired with a slight extension of the spine. Okay. So most folks that I have encountered, and, and it's, it's very common for this to, to happen, most folks with idiopathic scoliosis have a slightly Flattened kyphotic curve, mm. but kind of flat upper back, yeah. and a little bit of an exaggerated lordotic curve. In other words, a little bit of, as my dad called it, a duck butt, uh, a little bit <laughs> of an arch, <laughs> an arch in your low back. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, so, yeah, water up a duck butt. So, with the rods, the rods that I have, <laughs> or the surgery that I had, did not restore any of that kyphotic curve and it did not remove any of my lordotic curve. So I still mm. like from the side have a little bit of a death butt and a little bit of a flat upper back. You know, I don't know if that's just, you know, similar to the fact that they don't fully correct or fully straighten the lateral curves and they don't fully correct the rotation of the curves. Mm. Maybe they just don't feel that they can safely correct or, I don't even like the word correct.
3: Sure.
2: Maybe they feel like they can't safely restore um, what would otherwise be a normal, natural kyphotic or lordotic curve. So, so yeah, the rods do not typically restore those lordotic kyphotic curves. There's also, and I don't know too much about this, but with the Harrington rods, especially there, there have been complications. One of which is uh, the flatback syndrome. So when the spine is is like overly flattened, you know, if your spine is too much of a stick, it does not. It's not great at absorbing. So my with my lumbar curve a little bit exaggerated, with my kyphotic curve a little bit flattened, my lower lumbar vertebrae, like L three, four, five, S one, are more prone to getting a little bit more shock or more like compression than they might otherwise be. So short answer, typically, no, they don't correct that sagittal curve.
1: So I want to step now into you as a yoga practitioner and kind of make that segue. So the first thing I want to ask you is when did you start practicing? I assume it wasn't the first time I saw you because you seem like you kind of <laughs> malasana was on point already. So when did you start practicing? That's that question. And then married with, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure like how to, not that I'm trying to be diplomatic. I'm not, I'm not sure how to form this, but it's like, when you started practicing, did you start practicing with the consciousness of I have rods? And so I'm practicing to manage this spinal complication that I have. Was it part of your, not part of your identity, but was it part of the game plan. Was it part of like, I'm going to do yoga and I have rods or were those, were those like happenstance, were those kind of related internally or were those kind of not related internally?
2: Um, so I actually started before I had rods. Um, I started practicing when I was 15 as a, an attempt at avoiding surgery. Mm. Um, I had at that point, I mean, I'll give you a sort of a brief history of my, my life of scoliosis. So I was 12 when I was diagnosed and it was mild. And <laughs> the treatment for mild scoliosis is that your doctor says, we'll come back in six months and we'll give you another x-ray. It's called expectant treatment, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which really just means we'll see you later and see how it's doing in six months. So that happened for for I don't know a year and a half. Maybe I just kept coming back every few months to get more more X rays. Eventually, they were like, "Well, it's you know to the point it's moderate scoliosis. We, we'd like to give you a brace." And of course, what a treat for a fourteen year old! No <laughs> better wait to time hop in that puppy. <laughs> no better time. No, no My better gosh. time to be like to hear that your body is weird, weirder than usual, and to be like step into this plastic tube. And stay here for four
3: years. Oh my.
2: So (laughs) I can laugh now, but it was not fun. Totally. So, yes, I was prescribed a brace to wear for four years. That was the projected length of time. After about a year, I was like, screw this. Flipping tables, hating life. Sure. My family was like, okay, let's try something else. I still wore the brace at night for a little while, but like, and it was, a, it was actually not just a brace. It was a brace plus a whole other like alternative treatment program, which <laughs> fully go into it. But it was a thing called the Copes Method. If anybody else out there has done it, I want to hear from you a few Don't
1: years. Don't tell after me. Tell her. Yeah, no. You Google Abby. It's Abby. <laughs> her name just, if you Google treatment. Abby, it goes straight to her.
2: Yeah, it'll just go straight to that. No, a few years after I stopped the treatment, he was indicted for insurance fraud. So there was that. But it, yeah, went through a whole bunch of treatment. It was very stressful. And then, and then after, you know, deciding to kind of depart from the brace and depart from that treatment, my family was like, well, let, why don't we try yoga? I think we'd read, you know, some of Elise Browning Miller's work and just had, <laughs> were desperate sure. and really wanted to avoid getting my spine fused. So, so that was how I first practiced. And I practiced at this little place in Rochester, New York called Open Sky Yoga with Francois Raoul.
1: Really? With Francois? Yeah. Yeah. He was my first teacher. Isn't that wild? That is so wild. Kind of what an old school treasure to have. I know. So that's, is that how you knew who Elise was? I feel like my parents
2: had been reading about yoga for scoliosis and okay. came across Elise Browning sure, Miller's sure, sure. work. And then. And then, you know, we lived just outside of Rochester, New York. So like it was reasonably close to go into Rochester and see Francois. So,
1: so, so yeah. Any, anyone picture. that doesn't know Francois, he is a teacher of a certain generation, old school, super well-educated, super bright, old school, French Iyengar teacher. So yes. some complications there. You know what I mean? Like th- that's, That yeah. is a certain personality archetype, but a real source of deep information.
2: Totally. Yeah. It was super interesting. And I, I I remember almost nothing about like what I learned there. Um, I remember how he pronounced the word breath. It was very characteristic and very French, but what I remember most about that was that I was my sort of attitude going into it, which was, I hope that this helps me fix my back. And that is an attitude that I have 100% (laughs) departed from. Like that is not how I approach teaching. It is not how I approach practicing. Um, It is it is not a goal of mine to fix my or anybody else's body anymore. Um, But you know, at the time, like 15 years old, and told that my spine is curving out of control, and that I, you know, I best keep it in line because otherwise it's going to be fused. I was scared and hoped that like something I did or something I could do could help me, you know, correct it. So I, I don't remember how long I practiced with Francois but I think maybe a year or so, maybe less. But pretty soon into that, I was told again, like, okay, your curves are getting worse. And, you know, we're gonna, we are recommending surgery now. And so, so I had that. <laughs> you know, sort of a background, then, you know, a couple of years, I ended up sur- scheduling surgery once, chickening out, and then rescheduling it about a year later, which I guess I'll, which I say, because for anybody considering surgery that is listening, like it's a big freaking deal. Yeah. And yeah. like, it's not a decision that you just make lightly. I, I had it scheduled with a, with a doctor in Rochester. And then I ended up rescheduling it with a doctor in New York city who we chose because we did a little bit further research and I'm sure the doctor in Rochester was, was fine, but like the doctor in New York city did like 60 to 70 scoliosis surgeries a year versus the person in Rochester who did, you know, 10 to 12. Sure. So, so it took a lot. <laughs> it took a lot out of us to come to that decision to, to get surgery. So yeah, I was 17 when I got, when I actually got surgery. And then I was 22 when I started practicing yoga again. What brought you back in? Man, not my spine. (laughs) Mm. You know, after surgery, I kind of anytime anybody mentioned yoga or like gymnastics, which I also was a gymnast before, like in back when I was short, which was a long time ago. Whenever anybody mentioned yoga, I was kind of like, "Well, I can't do that, obviously, because I have you know a stick up my spine." (laughs) And so, what brought me back was my friend who I lived with at the time said that she had just gone to a yoga class and it was really lovely. And that I would, she was like, yeah, I think you'd like the teacher. I feel like you'd like yoga. I think it was just the hippie vibes. I exuded (laughs) people were like, you'll like yoga. (laughs) And it's true. I did. (laughs) So yeah. So I went, I went to this particular teacher whose name is Greg. I don't remember his last name. I wish I did he taught at true yoga in Rochester. And so I went to, so I just went to have a few classes with Greg at true yoga. And he was just like, so like kind and loving and peaceful. And, and I didn't feel like he was looking at me and telling me that there was anything wrong with my body. And that was like, it's, it's you know it's kind of funny to it's like I felt so seen when no one was looking at me. <laughs> yeah,
3: because <laughs> yeah, that's yeah,
2: what yeah. I needed, right? Like, yeah, I needed yeah. that anonymity of going to a class where I was not the only student. I was not there to fix anything about me. I was just there to like be in a community of of people who were interested in breathing and moving and like feeling things. So then Greg moved to Boston. Uh, I found and you know, I stayed at True and I and I found a couple of the teachers that I loved. Amanda and Tisa and Amy at like, yeah, great community at true yoga. And I think I practiced there for four years before I had what I always describe as just an epiphany that I needed to be a yoga teacher.
1: Can, can I um, pause you for a second? Yeah. So what I want to know is those, those kind of four years where you were practicing there mm-hmm. and you were being seen by not being seen, by having that anonymity. <laughs> Did you have private conversations with the teachers and say, I have, you know, I have scoliosis and rods, blah, blah, blah. And then like, I'd love to know a little bit about your, like your process of of just the postural part of self-discovery, figuring out like, oh, I am not going to do a drop back. <laughs> I am not going to do a deep twist. Yeah. like. Like, how did you, did you know how to self-regulate your postural decisions at that time? Obviously you were in a really welcoming, warm community that embraced you as, Mm -hmm. as all should, and they didn't try to fix or correct or get their hands on. Mm -hmm. But can you tell me a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about just your process of discovery of in that phase, like what's working for your body? What's not working for your body?
2: So, I mean, I remember one of the classes that I went to was was like a, a power vinyasa. And there was, I have a lot of feelings about power vinyasa now. But we did so many postures that did not require twisting, backbending, forward flexing, side bending. Like it, it, we did a lot of planks. We did a lot of long-held planks. You have a great plank, by the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) No hip flexion required in that one. (laughs) I love a good plank. So we did a lot of like strong shapes that did not require spinal flexibility. And so I think that was just like her teaching style. And it was also, yeah. So Amanda was this teacher's name. and she she talked a lot in class, like as we were doing poses, which I think was partially to like distract us from the fact that she was holding us in a four minute plank. And for me, it really worked at that time in my life because my mind was like so busy that I needed someone to kind of pull me out of it and have something else to focus on. And some of the things that she said were very like looking back on it, very trauma informed. They were very affirming and supportive, and like they made you feel like, Oh, I got this, and there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a badass. I'm strong. I can do this, I can stay here. And yeah, so she just like repeated things like that so often of like, You know, you've got this, and you know your body best. And if you need to take a break, that's fine, but try to stay with it. And it just felt like she was somebody who valued strength like physical strength, which I also valued and value. And and in a way that that made everybody, (laughs) I think made everybody feel strong, or at least encouraged everyone to feel like you're strong right now. You don't need to wait until you can do this better to be strong. Like you're strong right now. And so I think like a combination of of her, you know, her teaching style, both in what she said and the poses that she taught just made me realize like how many poses there are in yoga that you don't need to bend or twist or side bend. And when I started sort of like dabbling into (laughs) spinal movement, you know, I did so very cautiously and, and over time just kind of realized like, Oh, there are, there's more to this pose than just the spine, right? Like, if I'm oh, right, in a lunge right. twist, it's not just about your spine rotating. It's about like the lovely shoulder and pec opening that you get when you reach your arm up. It's about the stability in your, you know, your obliques and your abdominal wall. When you, when you hold yourself there, it's about the position of your feet and your legs. Like there's more than just the spine.
1: I, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I have to jump in. So one of the, so interesting to me is like there's something jumping in my mind that I just have to say, which is you've done 300 hours plus with me. Never once did I ever look at you in a pose and see lack. Never once did I see (laughs) like, oh, because she's not doing a deep twist, there's less going on in her practice and experience than someone else's. And I think this Mm -hmm. is something that we get so afraid of as yoga teachers from time to time is that people that have to make certain adaptations we get afraid that they aren't doing enough or they're going to feel like they are Mm -hmm. not doing enough. Right. But it's just so interesting knowing you the way I know you to hear this because it's, it is my experience of watching you. I never once saw you do, you know, some, I don't even want to call it modification. I really don't even want to call it a modification, but variation. (laughs) Yeah. I never saw you do a version of a posture that was different than your neighbor where I thought that you were doing less net action or, you know what I mean? There's just, I Mm -hmm. I never saw a sense of like, not even like, oh, whoa, is Abby, right? I never had that sense. But even (laughs) even less than that, I never had a sense that although you were doing something different frequently, I never had a sense that your total experience was in any way less then even someone like our like our friend Daniel, my student Daniel, who oh my gosh. can yeah. literally Back do everything. Then, yes. And then some, <laughs> right? But you know what I mean? You yes. you two, I would see you next to each other from time to time in training. And he, for people that don't know him, is he can literally do everything, kind of <laughs> better than most people, just from like a purely technical physical thing. But I never yes. but it
2: doesn't I, make I, you feel bad about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I never once felt like Oh, Daniel's doing this, and Abby's only doing this. So I I took you off course, but 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 I just I wanted to bring that up.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what's cool, what's really cool about having a fused spine or having like a pretty adapted practice and a portion of my body that doesn't move is that it makes it encourages me to pay greater attention to my body as a whole. And to the other elements of a pose, right? Like maybe I would look at a, an Urdhva Dhanurasana, you know, years ago, a wheel pose. And I would think, oh, I can't do that. Now I look at it. And I mean, over the last few years, I've looked at it and thought, okay, what are, what are the elements involved? Arms are overhead stretching, you know, the lats. Uh, I can still do that. Hip flexors are stretching. My, my you know, the hip joint is extended. I can do that. You know, the shoulder blades are, are wide and lifting towards the ears. I can do that can breathe wide into my ribs and like create a little bit more space that way. Great. I can do that. So, it so it was less about like, can I do that pose and more about, can I observe what's going on in that pose throughout the whole body, not just physically, but energetically, like, what's the point of this pose? Is it a rest? Is it an energetic pose? Is it, you know, is it a pose that, that I am meant to hang out in for a while? Is it supposed to calm me down? Is it supposed to rev me up? So what's happening physically and what's also happening energetically how can I still access certain elements of this pose in my body the way that it is, which as it turns out is not just useful. If you have a fused spine, right? right? Like everybody has limitations and every, with the possible exception of Daniel, <laughs> and everybody has the ability to still practice. Right. So that's part of the thing that I find so exciting and, and like delights me so much about (laughs) my spirit, my very frustrating experience having scoliosis and fusion. Yeah. It sucks a lot of the time, but it has almost forced me in the, like the best way to be more observant and to be more supportive of students with certain limitations, still accessing the elements of the pose and and elements of the practice.
1: Now, With specifically with regards to spine. So you just Mm -hmm. love, you know, summarize in so many ways, focusing on totality and focusing on how everything works together and then focusing on all of the elements that go into a posture and developing all of those elements to the degree that your body can develop those things. Mm-hmm. Specifically now when with regards to the spine, can you mm-hmm. walk us through the kind of the postural categories or the movement categories of the spine that are different in your experience and how you do a lunging twist? what happens in class when it's ordvadannyarosanaana time for you, right? Can you kind of step us mm-hmm. through how you work with your body in those scenarios?
2: Yeah. So most of my adaptations or variations come from fusion, like adapting because of my fusion, not so much because of my scoliosis. So yes, I'll start with adaption, adaptations for fusion uh, and then I'll, and then I'll go to scoliosis. So for fusion, again, it depends on the length of your fused segment you know, how many bones are immobilized. The longer (laughs) the segment, obviously, the more limited your spinal movement is. So the more you might adapt. It also depends somewhat on where the fused segment is. Like, is it all in your thoracic spine? Is it, does it span the thoracic and the lumbar? Does it go literally from, you know, T1 to S1? Uh, Is your neck fused? You know, so there's lots of variance even for people with, with a fused spine, but in general, you know, knowing where your fused segments are, knowing which joints and segments can still move. I'll say that I don't do backbends, but like, that's not really true. Yes. What I, what I definitely don't do, however, is a backbend with leverage. I definitely don't do twists with leverage. I definitely don't do side bends with leverage or even with like gravity pulling, like a standing side bend, not interested because gravity is pulling me to the side, like pulling me towards the ground and into a deeper bend. so so if leverage or or gravity or the force of gravity is maybe pulling me deeper into a twist, a back bend A side bend, forward fold, I don't worry as much about because I, I feel like for me with my flexible hamstrings, <laughs> It's okay if I'm holding forward pretty deeply, but, but if you have tight hamstrings, like a forward fold, you know, standing forward fold might also be pretty painful.
1: Give us all an example of Mm -hmm. a leveraged back bend that you do not do compared to a non-leveraged one. And then a leveraged twist that you do not do and an unleveraged yeah. twist that you do do. So just yeah. unpack that a tiny bit.
2: So, I mean, simple example of a leverage backbend would be up dog. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, depending on how you do it, Cobra. With up dog, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of leverage, both from your hands pushing the ground down away from you. And if your legs are lifted as the you know, they should be in, a, in an up dog, there's also gravity pushing yeah. your hips down. Yeah. So you're adding stress in your sort of mid and upper back by pushing your hands into the ground and lifting your chest up. And you're also adding or you're letting gravity add leverage and stress to your lower back with gravity pushing your hips Correct.
3: towards the earth,
2: but your legs kind of trying to lift them away from the earth. So there's a lot of stress. I mean, it's already a challenging pose, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And it's already hard, even if you don't have a fused spine, it's already hard to kind of distribute the stress and distribute the work beyond just dumping it all in your low back. You add to that, you know, a, a large portion of fused vertebrae and it's like nigh impossible to avoid that very strong low back bend. In because the, those like,
1: other segments can't take the yes, curvature. Right. So that exactly. load becomes concentrated in, the, in that first segment then can make the motion.
2: Right. Like if you imagine like a, let's, I don't know, a metal rod or like even a paperclip, right? Like a, a straightened out paperclip. I think we can deal with a metal or, rod.
3: I think we okay. have the, we have the, <laughs> we have the audience. Okay. You know,
2: level. I love clips. So imagine that you were going to bend the rod, right? Into a lovely back bend, into, into an up dog versus if you were then just going to fold or kind of choose one part of the rod and bend it uh, and fold it, I guess I should say, right? Like making a C sort of shape. That's a, that's a curve. That's a nice up dog versus part of this rod has to stay straight. And then I'm going to just bend this part. You know, if you bend it too much, it breaks or, and in this case, it's not really the rod that's bending. It's, it's, you've reached the end of the rod and then your spine is bending and you're putting more stress on that part of your spine. And, Add to that, the fact that for, again, for most people with scoliosis, there is already a slight extension in the spine. There's already right, sort right, of an right, excess right. lordotic curve. Right, I forgot about I don't that. need to exaggerate my lord- my lordosis anymore. And it's kind of already more prone to premature arthritis because of the nature of how those bones stack and, and curve with each other. So I am not interested in doing up dog <laughs> ever really again. If I ever demo it like real quick, and it's usually, I usually do not, if I, if I were to, I would bend my elbows a lot and I would stay really low and, and then I would get out of it real quick. <laughs> and then I'd be so like, like a, go.
1: almost like a, almost like a Cobra ish sort of.
2: Yeah. So, hybrid-y so, weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a uh, snake dog. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> okay. So That's now in unlever so things. now in unleveraged backbend.
2: Yes, locust. Your favorite. I know. Jason is the locust as Abby is the malasana That's
1: so, uh, your SAP you analogy. <laughs> so in this so yeah. in this scenario, the leverage is not coming from the extremities. The leverage okay. is not coming from the gravitational load.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And Instead, what the leverage is coming from is the endemic muscles that actually do that thing, right? Yes.
2: Your muscles are actually working against gravity, right? right. They're pulling you up into a backbend. Right. There's much less risk of overly backbending when it's just your muscles involved, when there's no external leverage, right? Yeah. And it's it's a pretty mild backbend, but even locust, for me, I do a little bit differently. I typically will leave my feet on the ground and sometimes even actively press my feet down into the ground. So like tops of my feet are pressed down like in a cobra, but my upper back and my arms and head are lifted. The reason I do that is to not overly arch my low spine, right. which again is already in a little bit of a back bend. I don't feel the need to arch it more, and it typically doesn't really feel good. So usually I'll do like a half locust. To, you know, technically I'll leave my feet down and I'll lift just my the front of my upper body. Cobra pose, I will. I will do. I, but it's a low cobra, and I'm not exerting any leverage. So typically my cobra pose is like a baby cobra my hands are on the ground but they are not pushing me away from the ground they're just kind of stabilizing my arms and my shoulders and i'm kind of gently pulling my my hands towards my hips
1: okay so one nice simple example like that of a twist so say you're in a crescent lunge so you say say class is doing revolved side angle pose you mm-hmm. are not going to use the leverage That's produced from the elbow to the knee. You're not going to use the the leverage of gravity, dropping the torso and facilitating that turn. Right? Mm -hmm. So you're not going to make that arm to leg connection, but does that mean that you in Crescent Lunge are just going to stay there? Or does it mean that you are going to, to create the amount of spinal rotation that you can produce from the rotational muscles of core?
2: depends on the day <laughs> and okay. depends on how many other twisty things or spinal things I've done, which, you know, I think you can apply <laughs> more broadly like that. We should all listen to what we've done that day and, and how our body is feeling in the moment. But in general, in general, I actually won't twist if I'm in it, if I'm in an upright lunge. sometimes like if I'm, let's say I'm in a, um, a pyramid pose. And I'm coming from, from to Parvrita trikanasana to Revolved Triangle. That one I more typically will do in a, in a modified way than something like a, a revolved lunge. And I think the reason is that with both legs straight, it's easier for me if I'm standing and folding forward and then rotating. If I don't have a hand on the ground, it's easier for me to stay stable with both legs straight. That makes sense. Than it is with the front leg bent.
1: Yeah. And when you were saying saying that too, especially like, although you have certain ranges, your body does not go into, your spine does not go into, you are a very skillful, technical, sophisticated practitioner. So something like a revolved triangle pose modification or alternative, I think there's just more going on there. You know what I mean? There's there's so much more play in the legs of what you can work with to kind of get a feel for that spiral that goes from the back leg through the trunk. So I can imagine right. that that's, this just a little bit, it's a little bit more whole body interesting to play with that. Yeah. Than a, a modified crescent lunge.
2: Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, very occasionally I might stay upright in a crescent lunge and just kind of engage my obliques yeah. <laughs> and my transverses yeah. abdominals and like rotate ever so slightly like, you know, literally like a couple centimeters of rotation of actual rotation, but I still feel my core muscles engage. similar with a revolved triangle. I'll start out, you know, with both feet down, my hands at my heart or hands on my hips, I'll engage my obliques and I'll rotate just a teeny little bit. I might stay there for a second or two, and then I'll take my left hand. If I'm twisting to the right, I'll take my left hand down and then I'll let my pelvis rotate on top of my femurs.
3: Sure. And sure, I'll sure.
2: still keep my core engaged so that I'm not overly rotating my pelvis or my sacrum, but I'll feel like, ah, my hips are involved a little bit, my legs are responsive, my my spine is still straight. I'm not actually rotating it, but I'm still feeling that good like core stability and kind of yeah. drawing in of my abdominal wall that, you know, ideally I would I would feel in a revolved triangle without a fused spine.
1: Now um, can I take you to Yoga pre fusion. There's like kind of two segments mm-hmm. left in, in our conversation. I want to get to mm-hmm. some basic thoughts around adaptations for scoliosis without rods. In, in some ways, it's yeah. more complicated, right? It, mm-hmm. in a lot, <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, it's, it's more complicated because yeah. you have the asymmetries and you have more movement potential which is complicated because mm-hmm. there's certain things you want to accentuate the motions of and certain things you want to deaccentuate the motion of scoliosis to me too, is also just really geometrically confusing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because you, because you yep. have, you have the lateral curvature, but then you have the corresponding rotations. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and not that we need to have like a full throated treatise on yoga and scoliosis, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm ready, but, but you're ready. Actually, (laughs) yeah. Some basic things that either you from your own body, maybe working with Francis or just Elise or kind of the the knowledge base that you have of as a yoga teacher working with someone that has an identified scoliosis but not Rod's and is otherwise like a totally functional, interested person, they're not even necessarily there because they want to deal with their scoliosis, they're there because they want to do yoga. You know, right. They're
3: there know because I mean? they want that. They didn't come to
1: physical to therapy, feed. right? They yeah. they don't they don't need to be like, hey, okay, you, I don't know if you can do this. This is gonna be all different. Like if you move or sneeze, you're gonna right. break in half. Right. right? <laughs> so, like just some general thoughts about how you would manage this. That's the first thing. And then mm-hmm. I think the then the final kind of brief topic we can touch into, which I think you've set up so well. I think you said her name was Amy. And how she kind of was Amanda. How she kind of was trauma informed without being trauma informed, mm-hmm. which I can say is mm-hmm. also the exact same with all of my good teachers that I've ever had. Yeah.
2: So yeah, so yoga philosophy is a hot topic, and so I, I guess I should say that there's a lot of there. There are a fair amount of divergent opinions uh, sure. as with everything. So the way that I approach students with scoliosis or, or teaching to folks with scoliosis is first and foremost to impart to them that they know their bodies best. I'm not here to fix their back. I'm not here to straighten them out. What I am here for is to guide them into deeper listening, to guide them into deeper understanding of how their body works which is of course the same for all students, really. Like that's kind of my mission statement. And, you know, looking specifically at bodies with scoliosis, there are a couple common, common patterns and common things that we can pay attention to. And one is the side that is <laughs> convex, the side that where the ribs are more spaced apart in the thoracic spine is usually going to need a little bit more strength drawn into it the side that is more compressed with the ribs closer closer together is going to need a little bit more space. So there's a side of the body that we're going to work more on strength and the opposite side, we're going to work more on length. This of course gets complicated when there's more than one curve, yeah. because if I let's, so like I have a right thoracic left lumbar double curve, very common. So that means that I want to spend some more time strengthening the upper right side of my spine. So like muscles around my right shoulder blade, my right back ribs, my right side ribs, all of those muscles. I want to spend a little more time
1: strengthening because there's always on that side too. There's always the scapular conundrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Especially on the medial and inferior border of the scapula on that more convex side. So lower inner, yes. Yeah, lower inner. Okay. So you're thinking that the more convex side, more strength in that whole upper back, including that the scapular component.
2: Yes. And then on my left lower side, again, because I have that right thoracic left lumbar curve, on my left lower side, I want to spend more time strengthening that. So I want to spend more time strengthening my right upper back and my left lower back. Mm. I want to spend more time bringing length to my left upper back and my right lower back. So yes. (laughs) Then of course you add the fact that like some people have triple curves and like quadruple curves. So, so it, it can get really complicated really fast, but in general, I am a firm believer that your body will tell you, What you need, (laughs) but of course we've been trained by society to ignore the signs that our body gives us, and so learning that skill to like listen, pay attention, and and respond skillfully is difficult. And so that's obviously, that's my role as a teacher is to say like, hey, well, try you know what? How would it feel if you were to you know keep your right arm down by your side, externally rotate that right arm. And reach your left arm forward, turning your left palm towards the center and letting your left shoulder lift towards your ear in something like a standing pose, like Tadasana or like Urdhva Hastasana, but like asymmetrical version or even locust pose, but asymmetrical Mm. version.
1: This is so interesting, right? And this is a basic question. Does an even more basic question that comes up regularly for yoga practitioners and yoga teachers. Which is in the yoga world, we tend to obsess with this idea of symmetry, <laughs> right? Yes, we do. Now, in
2: society, we obsess totally. with it.
1: <laughs> now, yeah. now, it's not a bad idea in general, in a general class to say, if you're going to do X on one side, then you want to do X on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't mm-hmm. have any known specific variables that we're trying to troubleshoot for or that we're trying to manage. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you have an asymmetrical injury or an asymmetrical condition or an asymmetrical phenomenon of embodiment, mm-hmm. then treating an asymmetrical thing symmetrically is <laughs> asymmetrical.
3: <laughs>
2: it right, exactly.
1: Makes sense.
2: You don't right? get surgery on your right hip and then do physical therapy
1: for both hips, right? <laughs> Correct. So understanding that as a practitioner community, but also as a teacher community, that the idea of symmetry is a good idea until it's revealed that in this scenario, you're not working with a symmetrical thing and you're going to have to think a little bit more outside of the box and being really willing to, as you're describing in Tadasana or Hastasana, maybe not do Hastasana the same way, a more symmetrical spine is going to do it but you're going to do it in a way that is conducive to what you have.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, or maybe not do it the same way all the time. Like I'm right. also a huge fan of varying the way that you do poses and the way that you do transitions. Like recently I've been really enjoying doing just like the classical sun salutation with a forward fold transition <laughs> and occasionally I'll do the molasses transition and so I like I like to, to mix things up a little bit and make sure that my body is not always doing the same thing the same way every time. And for something like locust pose, I think there's value in, or half locust pose as I do, I think that there's value in doing just like the symmetrical locust pose every now and then, partially because it... <laughs> It just makes me feel normal <laughs> like, right it's It's nice to not always yeah. be modifying for you know your curvy spine, and I think that's also something that we have to remember is like especially for those of us who don't have scoliosis and are teaching to a population with scoliosis like it's easy to forget that like scoliosis is more than just a condition of the spine right like. If you have scoliosis, if you were diagnosed as a teenager, you went through a whole host of experiences that were like tangentially related to your spine, right? Like there's an emotional component. And and sometimes you're just like, you know, I just want to do this. (laughs) Like, I remember the story of like when Rodney came in and he was like, hey, flex your foot. And you're like, I'm just trying to stretch my foot, Rodney.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just give me a break, man. I'm just stretching the front (laughs) of my foot. We just
2: want to do like a symmetrical thing. So I think mixing up, you know, stepping away from the idea that we, that we always need to be symmetrical and, and also stepping away from the idea that we always need to be doing the same thing or the same alignment every time. Right. Uh, I think just opening those doors can be like very revelatory and can remind you that like, oh, the magic of yoga is in the listening and the responding to what I'm actually hearing, not just assuming that. Since I aligned in this particular way yesterday or two minutes ago, I'm going to want to do that same alignment again.
1: I want to conclude in a moment with a couple of the, your broader sensibilities of not necessarily being officially trauma-informed, but mm-hmm. kind of going with the communication style uh, mm-hmm. And the tact and the general sensibility of setting an inclusive culture for everyone, including people that have, look, we all have unique postural scenarios. Some mm-hmm. people's are even more unique than others. I want to get one more thought, one more postural little tidbit. Um, mm-hmm. Scoliosis and like an asymmetrical standing pose, right? Because I think it's a really good way for an audience to, to kind of visualize this. So let's take a really simple scenario. Let's say we have the most we have one curve, right? We have a thoracic mm-hmm. curve. I, there's always some yeah. compensating curve, but right, it's it's yeah. curve dominant. Let's
2: say, we'll say a right thoracic curve, yeah.
1: Right. So we kind of were talking there about locus and tadasana, which are symmetrical postures. But if you're doing something like triangle pose, that's a hugely asymmetrical posture. So the way you do triangle pose on one side, the side of the spine that is convex or a little bit shorter might be very different than the way you're doing triangle pose on the other side. If you're choosing to do triangle pose in a specific way to work with your spine. If it's not one of those um, days where you're just like, dude, I'm going to do triangle pose the way everyone else does triangle <laughs> right. pose because exactly. this is my choice today. And guess what? It's my right. body and I get to make that choice. Deal with it. Yes.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm going to actually use part of a konasana, side angle, okay. just because I think it's a little bit easier to envision. Sure. And <laughs> you know me, it's really hard for me to talk without also demoing everything. Me so too. I'm going to try to speak in a way that is communicable verbally. So, okay. So let's let's take side angle pose with a right thoracic curve. Just so a my, curve.
1: my thoracic spine is a little bit pressed to the right. My right side is the rounder yeah. side. It's rounder. Your outcomes. right
2: side ribs are flared. Your left side ribs are a little compressed. Got it. Your right shoulder blade is probably winged back a little bit. Right. And your right shoulder is probably a little higher than your left. Those are all characteristics typically of a right thoracic curve. So let's say I have a right thoracic curve and, and I'm coming into side angle with my right leg forward and bent. Yes. I'm going to take my right forearm to my right side, and I'm going to reach my left arm up over my head, just like normal, just like probably everybody else in class is doing. And I am going to enjoy the crap out of the stretch in yeah. my left rib cage, because that's the side that, you know, day to day as I'm walking around in my everyday life is a little more compressed. So, so side angle with my right leg forward, my right forearm on my right thigh with a right thoracic curve is going to look pretty much the same as everybody else's side angle. And I, in addition to stretching my left hand up over my ear, I might also kind of gently rotate or turn my chest towards the sky, rotating just a little bit to the left.
1: So li- little bit accentuated side bend and rotation on yes. that side. Correct.
2: I'm bringing space to my left ribs and I'm also encouraging my ribs and my thoracic spine to rotate slightly to the left because typically they are rotated to the right and my left ribs are compressed. So yeah, I'm, I'm attempting to, to bend my spine a little bit, the opposite direction, that it's usually bent and rotate my spine the opposite direction that it's usually rotated. These are, they can be very subtle. It, you know, it might not look like a big side bend, right? It probably won't <laughs> because we're actually kind of coming out of a side bend towards straight. And it won't look like a big twist either, because we're kind of coming out of, being twisted to the right and twisting gently to the left, but kind of coming back into neutral. Understood. Um, so even subtle adjustments like that, even kind of sending your breath towards the back left side of your rib cage can feel amazing. I, I still do that, even though I can't really, it, it, I have very limited mobility in my thoracic spine. I still can feel both of those things and it feels great. So that's side angle with my right leg forward, side angle with my left leg forward and bent. And my left forearm on my thigh is going to look different instead of reaching my right arm over my ear. I'm going to keep my right arm down by my side, turn my right palm towards the wall that I'm looking at. I kind of turn my bicep away from my heart, externally rotating my upper arm
1: to engage in so, external rotators of the humerus. And then also to yes. help to also help co-engage those scapular muscles, those bottom and inner tip to hold them in. Okay.
2: Yeah. So I'm kind of pulling, I'm rolling the head of my humerus, the head of my upper arm bone up and back. And I'm kind of pulling my right shoulder blade onto my back rib.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so I've got that strength. I'm, I'm encouraging more strength in the upper right side of my back. And at the same time, I'm still kind of pulling my left shoulder away from my left hip bringing a little bit more space into my left ribs, just like I did on the other side and breathing towards the back left side of my ribs. So I'm still doing that. At the same time, I'm bringing some conscious strength into my right thoracic region.
1: Kind of firing those like the right QL more or the obliques more on that side. And some of those, yeah, If
2: we're dealing with a single curve, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That we're, we're dealing, yeah. That we, yeah, we are, yeah, yeah, We're dealing with the easiest situation. Yeah. it's towards yeah. the end of this podcast. They've been listening to us chat for a long time, <laughs> right? I can literally go on forever about this because this stuff is. Oh my
3: gosh!
2: I
1: love a good puzzle. I actually, don't like puzzles, uh. but I like body puzzles.
2: No, but a mental puzzle. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. And you want and that bottom side, right? The mm-hmm. left side. You're trying to pull. Mm-hmm out. You're trying to make longer.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's, again, it's not to make a side bend. I'm, I'm paying attention to the, to the cue that probably everyone has gotten, which is keep both side bodies long.
1: One side side body's already long. Naturally.
2: One side body's already long. One side
1: body's naturally already shorter. So you're bringing more attention to lengthening the shorter side and shortening the long side so that both are may not have a substantial change in terms of angle, but mm-hmm. can r- relieve the some of the underlying tension within that system mm-hmm. let me wrap by finally just circling back to kind of the the psycho emotional landscape of being a yoga teacher and to mm-hmm. knowing that we have students that come into our room with all sorts of human experiences. And we know that the human experience is nuanced and lovely and beautiful (laughs) Mm -hmm. and difficult. And, you know, specifically you're talking about, as you're talking about, um, the adolescent idiopathic scoliosis and when you had your surgery, like these are such, I don't know if there's any time in life that isn't formidable in its way, but man, adolescence is a big deal. It's not easy for anyone, right? It's not easy for anyone. So just advice on as teachers, what we can do to be inclusive, to be sensitive, to be, I don't necessarily mean we've gone to a trauma-informed certification program. I mean, we can do that Mm -hmm. for sure, but Mm -hmm. kind of best practices in your experience from not only being an excellent yoga teacher, but by being a human that practices yoga and who has been managing the scenario we've been talking about?
2: Yeah, I think there, you know there's a couple things that we can do. And one is in the way that we approach class overall and sort of the things that we say at the beginning of class or that we might sprinkle throughout class. And then there's another thing relevant to cueing or the way that we cue and the way that we sequence, actually. So the first thing, which again, <laughs> that Amanda was, was great at, was kind of setting up class and offering reminders throughout class that you're here for you, that you know your body best, that yoga is about listening, that it is about uh, responding with kindness, with patience, and about being like, Present moment to moment and recognizing that how you feel and what is happening in your body and around you is constantly changing. But what is constant is that we can listen, we can feel, and we can stay connected. So that sort of reminder, I think is helpful at the beginning of almost all your classes. And then also interspersed because we humans have a terrible memory. (laughs) And as soon as class starts, I mean, maybe not so, so much now with, you know, virtual teaching, like, thank God we are not looking around the room constantly and like comparing ourselves to others anymore as much.
1: This is going to be a whole nother question that you and I have, because actually what's so interesting and I've never thought about it because I'm so self-absorbed is myself <laughs> and every single yoga teacher out there that is teaching on zoom is like, Oh my gosh, I can't see my students. I can't see yeah. my students. Yeah. But I mean, some students really like not being seen. It can be it's really true. nice
2: true. I know. this is, yeah, I got, but but we won't go down that road
1: because yeah.
2: Yeah. Suffice it to say that I'm overall, like actually really pumped that, that our students get this opportunity to practice without us seeing them. Like, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And if they want to turn their video on, they can, but, but I think it's amazing to remember like, Oh, I am here for me. And I don't have to like worry about what my teacher thinks of my form in this post. I'm going to listen. I'm going to feel, I'm going to do what feels right. So I actually love that element of, of virtual teaching, but so that first thing that the way that we set up the class, the way that we, that we start class and the the reminders that we offer throughout class, I think is one element that we can, that we can focus on and like, make sure that we are really driving home the point that like, we are here to guide. We are not here to tell you how to feel or exactly what to do in any situation. We're here to like, help you listen better to yourself. And then the other component, couple components, is in how we cue and how we sequence. And actually, I'll start with sequencing, because I think it's maybe a little bit more concrete. So as you, I think, know, I have a master's in education, (laughs) and we studied differentiated education as one of the, um, you know, one of the, like, tenets of of modern-day education is differentiated instruction, which basically means that we as teachers need to pay attention to the various levels and abilities of our students and offer options that work for everyone, which is, of course, incredibly difficult. But something as simple as like, okay, we're doing some standing sequences. The first time through, we're going high lunge to warrior two, to reverse warrior, to side angle, to a lunge, step back to plank, slow back to down dog. That's what we do the first time through. Then the second time through, we go from lunge to uh, warrior two, to peaceful, to this time, triangle pose, a little more challenging, a little more demand than side angle. But in saying triangle, we're like, or you can return to side angle. And then we, you know, then same thing flow through. Then the third time we come up, we go high lunge to warrior two, to reverse, to maybe triangle or maybe side angle. And then we say, and if you're feeling spry and if you're feeling saucy and you want a balancing pose, maybe you shift forward into a half moon. Otherwise, stay where you are. So you're kind of giving like steps and you're offering scaffolding and options that are like very similar, right? Like the position of the legs and the body and the demand for the body is like quite similar in triangle and half moon, but obviously half moon is on one foot. (laughs) So in the way that we sequence, we can sequence in a way that sort of like gives students the skills to come back to what works for them rather than just feel like they have to go on to this thing that they may not want to go on to, or may not be able to go on to. So that's an example of kind of how I might differentiate my instruction in a yoga class. And then, and then the other concept is, or the other category is, is in queuing. And I think that I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of paying attention to your prepositions.
1: <laughs> um, so, like, do you like than finishing <laughs> prepositional phrases as well. Are you as into oh, that as I me?
2: Love, I'm very into that. Yes, <laughs> I think that we should. If you're reach, starting a phrase,
1: you best reach finish. up toward <laughs> the ceiling.
2: It, exactly. Yeah, not just reach up toward.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: What do you got? Come on, you guys, reach toward.
1: Finish that prepositional um, <laughs> phrase.
2: <laughs> so, rather than saying like, inhale, reach your arms up. Exhale, fold forward, take your hands to the ground. I wouldn't say take your hands to the ground. I would say almost always I say take your hands towards the ground or, or actually not even hands. I say fold towards the ground because then it's like there's no marker of like, oh, but what if I can't reach the ground? Does that mean I'm a bad student? Does that mean I can't do this pose? So pay attention to like, are you saying take this to this or or move towards this?
1: So for me... <laughs> I have always had an injured, but relatively healthy functional body. The injuries are just a function of doing contact things my whole life. I am a very sensitive person that pretends they're not sensitive because I'm a Midwestern male (laughs) and that's just built into our enculturation, probably a little bit into our Scandinavian DNA. But so I remember going to classes really early on with super tight hamstrings And there were, there was cues and forward bends of bring your torso to your legs. Oh God. Okay. (laughs) Now listen, that teacher was not a bad teacher. That teacher was wonderful. Okay. There's no, it's right. But every single time a moment went through my head where I didn't actually feel worse about myself because I already felt bad about myself, but (laughs) where, where there was a part of me that it gave a little space for my mind to disagree. It gave my mm-hmm. mind a little space because they were giving a finite cue and my body mm-hmm. was not able to do that finite thing. This mm-hmm. is something where I have always said, like f- moment one, it's toward the legs. It's yeah, towards yeah. this. And again, not to vilify the opposite, but to, from that experience of, it's not even from someone that is specifically... In class, dealing with or unpacking trauma—like there's no trauma around the mm-hmm. reality that I played hockey for 20 years and have tight hamstrings. Yeah. I don't well, have I mean, physical trauma. There might be physical trauma.
2: There's sure. some yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah. Okay, Abby. Okay, fine. There's yeah. some stuff going yeah, on. Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay? <laughs> Story for another time. <laughs> there's there's
1: some stuff going on, but I don't feel like coming <laughs> undone right now. But the point yeah. is, is like I wasn't really even unpacking some complicated psycho-emotional dynamic. You
0: mm-hmm. know what I mean?
1: It was just yeah. a moment where, like that thing was not a not as correct as it could have been and it gave right. my mind a little way to not fight with it but to not completely buy in
2: yeah and same thing and i think you've you've spoken about this too perhaps on your blog of like using your body kind of as landmarks or like like reach your arms away from your hips you know you don't have to even say straight up to the ceiling because what if your shoulders don't do that right so yeah you know offering Cues that, if you have a limitation, you know how frustrating it is to be offered a cue that you just can't do. And so, offering a cue that, like, is it still offers clear direction and still gives the students, like, a sense of where they're going without giving them necessarily a destination, you know, Mm -hmm. or a specific destination. Well, okay, I'll give you another example of, like, a forward fold, let's say, rather than saying, fold forward, take your hands to the ground. I might say fold forward or t- fold towards your legs, taking your hands maybe to block, maybe to the ground, or maybe even keep, keeping your hands on your hips if that's where they started. And just every, you know, not with every single pose, because sure. that would be incredibly verbose and annoying, but every now and then just kind of reminding students of like, reach your hands to the ground or your blocks come to your palms or to your fingertips you know give a couple options and then at the very least that reminds people that there are options you know more than just the one yes I think the combination is kind of like building your sequences in a way that that builds on itself you know a sequence obviously that it's beneficial for for most students to do a side angle before a triangle and a triangle before a half moon but it's particularly useful you know, not just in a physical sense, but also in the sense that you're reminding your students that like, these are pretty similar poses and you can stay right here in that first stop while other people go to the second while other people go to the third and there is no hierarchy.
1: Right. So yeah. Okay. Abby, where can listeners find you? You live in Portland. Are you first, are you teaching any physical classes in Portland? Are you teaching any? Oh no, you must not be. You're an organs kind of are you
2: teaching any no um so we were doing some outdoor classes over the summer but those just ended last last week um because the rain's gonna come but yes i'm teaching unfortunately we uh, no i know i've never been more appreciative for rain holy crap yeah (laughs) no I, i am welcoming the rain um but no so i teach at the people's yoga And I teach right now, well, let's see, I'm just about to slightly reduce my class load, but I I will still be teaching six classes a week,
1: virtually. Do you you have a single site that people can go to to find those classes?
2: Yes, yes. You can go to my website, which will link you to everything. And that is abbywiththerods.com.
1: A-B-B-Y with the... Rods. Yes, the rods. A-D-D-Y you've taken such you, right. You, it's right. You've taken such <laughs> like ownership, right? <laughs> You're like this is.
2: Yeah, this I, is I, it. I want to do something rods forward. <laughs>
1: and then one more thing about your classes. Do you have mm-hmm. any classes that are yoga for scoliosis and or rods yeah. specific? And yep. then anything that is more uh, general vinyasa or general hatha.
2: Yeah. The all the classes I teach with people's are are vinyasa. I, I teach one restorative right now, but that's, I'm about to take a, a break from that. So those are all vinyasa. And then in November, November 14th and 15th, I'll be teaching a three-hour workshop. You know, in, in two parts, one and a half hours on each day, on yoga with scoliosis and fusion. And then the very exciting part, or very exciting news. Is uh, starting on January twelfth. I'll be teaching a fifty-hour immersion and teacher training for folks with scoliosis and spinal fusion, and teachers who want to learn more about that. So, yes, yeah, so I've done I've done a fair amount of yoga with scoliosis and spinal fusion workshops in the past, and it and I kept getting questions from people about like, oh, do you teach teacher training? Do you teach any longer workshops? Do you you know? It just seemed like there was a need for for a longer program. So yeah starting this this january i will i'll be doing every every other week you know three we'll meet three days a week so that we'll talk in the training about four sort of actions of the spine lengthening strengthening side bending and twisting and those are kind of the categories that i like to work with most cuz they they work it doesn't work, doesn't work with all of the planes of the action sure. of the spine but it but it offers a, a nice sort of well-rounded understanding of of spines with scoliosis and spinal fusion. And great. yeah. So that'll be a 50 hour training.
1: Awesome. You know, next year, just like I did at the end of this year, next year, I'm doing my whole 300 hour certification program online. And I would be mm-hmm. stoked to have you come back and do some stuff, especially for module oh, yeah. three, because I like in my module three online, I touch into yoga for scoliosis. Like as well as I can touch on it in like a 30 to 45 minute thing. And usually what I do in that is kind of say like, look, I'm going to give you the bare bones. I'm going to give you the concepts. I'm going to give you kind of the lowest hanging fruit to understand about this. And then if you want Mm -hmm. to learn even more and you want to have even more of a specialized understanding that I can offer you, and then I I point people in different directions, but especially now that we're doing things online, it is so Mm -hmm. much easier to Work with people, and I think also because you've done the whole training, you know so well like the ethos of it and where people will be in the process of it. Mm-hmm. That if you would do it, I will to circle back to you, and I would love to have you participate mm-hmm. in that third round. It would be awesome, totally, yeah. Um, and then maybe you and I can talk again on the podcast about yoga and education.
3: Oh yes, I would. I mean, love as if that. this as yeah. if this
1: weren't like detailed, right. But really getting to like, (laughs) because so much in trainings, you know, people often are not taught how people learn and effective pedagogy. This is so important. It's so important that in trainings, I would say even more so in the online landscape, we're really spending time in these courses, thinking about best practices for education. I think for me, Some of the things that make me happiest are when students of mine come up and they say, I have a master's in education and thank you for repeating the sequence the same time and telling me like reinforcing (laughs) these certain basic (laughs) educational steps. Right. Because I, I always wanted to be a teacher. I didn't always (laughs) want to be a yoga teacher. So (laughs) I would love to kind of talk. Me too. You know what I mean? But but, Uh, yeah, no, I was like, I need
2: to be a teacher. I don't know of what, but something.
1: Yeah, so let's talk again in a couple months about um, yoga and teaching. Okay, thanks so much, Abby. It's awesome to have you here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Yay. Bye bye. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks as always for listening. I'll put links to Abby's website on our show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 213. If you enjoyed hearing Jason as a host, he will be back and he would love to know. So feel free to leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple podcasts or anywhere you get your podcast. We appreciate it so much. It truly, truly helps other people to find the podcast. And also if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe because then you won't miss an episode. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.